Hi, this is Keith Kefchin, and you're listening to Dollars and Drivers, a podcast that allows leaders an outlet to discuss what drives them and their distinct way of succeeding in life and business. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Dollars and Drivers. Today, we're going to be speaking with Tim Wilmot, former CEO of Penn National Gaming, and now one of the board of directors at Darden Restaurants. You know, appreciate you doing this. Just so, you know, background really revolves, again, around the leadership issue. Jim and I are writing a second book. We're calling it The Way because we think people have great vision. They have a lot of 30,000 feet. They talk a good game. But then what? Uh, what? What is the difference between truly successful companies uh, and people that just talk a good game? And so uh, we're, we're trying to kind of dig down into the weeds about the blocking and tackling of business. Uh, and so the podcast is going to support some of that. That's why the questions that we come up with. And again, let's just dive in. And okay. uh, I think first and foremost, we we're curious in talking to leaders about what personally and professionally has driven them to succeed? What would have been the driving forces for you in keeping you on the path to success? You know, maybe it's just the overriding fear of failure and uh, making sure that, you know, when I was younger and and going through my education, trying to figure out what I wanted to do, I I realized I didn't, you know, I came out of business school, didn't want to get in consulting, go into investment banking. I wanted to run my own business and have responsibility for a P&L and then take it from there. And I was just always driven to perform, always driven to, to drive results, to do things through developing talent and through people to help deliver results that uh, obviously people above me could recognize to continue to advance my career. I was really always looking for more responsibility and and greater challenge and greater complexity to what I was doing. And I knew if I could deliver the results that were expected of me from my immediate bosses, that greater opportunities would follow. So I was always looking to grow and never be stagnant and and enjoy the ride and make sure I was having fun through the entire process. And, and how did you get on that path? I mean, obviously, there's that motivation, but I've seen a lot of people highly motivated and skilled and talented that get on the wrong path or somehow <laughs> get derailed. So how, how did you how did you stay on that path? Well, I think I was fortunate enough to find an industry that one I love, the casino industry. When I joined it uh, back in 1987, there were only two states that had legalized casinos: Nevada and New Jersey. Right, and it was important for me. To uh, I gotten some advice from the CFO at Pfizer when I was in business school uh, to find something you like and find an industry that was going to grow because that'll give you opportunities to learn and make mistakes because growth can cover up a lot of uh, a lot of sins and you know, I found the casino industry which I liked from growing up in New Jersey I liked the environment I liked the, the level of uh, human resource capital you had to work with and the customers you had to work with and the excitement of the whole uh, environment. And I found a company that was progressive enough to try to take talent out of business school and grow future leaders. And you know, my goal when I got in involved in 1987 was to run my own P&L and have accountability for results of a business. And you know, by 1993, I was promoted to the president and general manager of a casino outside of Chicagoland in Joliet, Illinois, that gave me that opportunity. And I had a great mentor and a guy named Phil Satry who was the chairman and CEO of Harris. At that time, he was, he was the president and I worked for him um, directly uh, for quite some time. And he was a, a great um, boss to uh, learn from about all the good things he did. And, you know, some of the things that you, you can always learn from that he didn't do well, but you can always learn. And Phil was a great supporter of my career. And we worked together until he retired in 2002. 
Yeah, there seems to be a consistency when people talk about either mentors or having people that were influential. I mean, besides Phil, were there other people that really had an impression or a deciding factor on your success? Oh, no question. Um, you know, I worked with a guy named Gary Loveman, who was the uh, he was the chief operating officer when I was a division president, and then when he when he was the CEO, I was the chief operating officer of Harris, now renamed Caesars, and. Gary had one of the best marketing minds I've ever come in contact with. And uh, we worked very closely together in the development of the uh, loyalty program at, at the time called Total Rewards. And uh, Gary taught me a lot about marketing and about how to think about the customer and how to think about the lifetime value of the customer and managing a relationship uh, around that lifetime value concept. And we also worked very closely together on trying to optimize uh, within our industry the service profit chain trying to maximize the level of employee engagement to get the maximum discretionary effort from your team members to deliver loyal and satisfied customers that delivered the financial results that allowed your company to grow. And uh, you know, Gary and I worked very closely on that with the entire team. And that's something I brought to Penn 12 years ago when I, when I joined with Peter Carlino. I mean, Gary, having come from Harvard at the time, was probably one of the more controversial picks to run a publicly traded company, having really never done that. Obviously, you can look back and say that was a good thing. But at the time, uh, what do you think was going on in the minds of the people down in the trenches at Harris? Well, let me start with Phil Satry. I was working for Phil at the time, and we didn't have a chief operating officer. And we had, I think, about 16, 17 properties within the enterprise. And we were, we were struggling a bit trying to figure out how to connect everybody up and get everybody aligned to... Uh, take advantage of our scale and the fact that customers like to visit multiple properties across our company. And Gary was specifically brought in by Phil because he wanted someone in the COO role that was a marketing expert and would be able to take all of these disparate casino operations and get them aligned around a single marketing paradigm that we we're going to have one loyalty program that was going to work across the entire company that customers would visit when they went to Las Vegas or when they were in Atlantic City. And that's the reason Gary was put in place because of his marketing background initially. Right. And it was funny because it, it was positioned uh, to me that Gary was only going to be there for a two or three year period and then go back to Harvard, which he right. told me directly. And, and obviously, once he got involved in it, you know, he fell in love with the industry and stayed for a long time. Now, underneath, uh, no question, there was a lot of skepticism about how's this guy coming out of business school with, with no casino background? How is he going to uh, pull this out? And is this going to be just an academic exercise? And does he understand the practicality of you know, delivering the numbers? And you, know, you have quarterly earnings reports that are expected right. uh, to deliver. And, and Gary's a smart study. And he, you know, he quickly figured that out, obviously, uh, working with Phil and others at the corporate office and myself and the other division presidents out in the field. Yeah, there was initial skepticism, but I think after 18 months to two years, you know, Gary had uh, had delivered on what he needed to do to be a successful COO. It sounds like, and I make comparisons to sports often, I think of the Brady-Belichick combo and that uh, they talk about the Patriot way of doing business. Was there a, a Harris way? Did you guys have a playbook? Was there something that went beyond just standard SOPs uh, that was a, a true playbook? I was curious whether that was in place or was it just a theory? No, I think getting back to what uh, what I mentioned before, Keith, that we had, we had a framework called the service profit chain where if we held our operators accountable for delivering high levels of improving employee engagement, 
high levels and improving customer satisfaction and delivering the financial results. And that's how we measured uh, our team members that were running these large casino properties on those three dimensions, employee satisfaction, customer loyalty and satisfaction, and delivering financial results. And our compensation systems were aligned against those three metrics. And if we continue to improve on that quarter after quarter, year after year, we were going to be successful. So I think that was the playbook. Got it. I mean, that leads in my next question, because there's a lot of talk, certainly over the last decade, about CEO pay and the inequality of pay. Uh, but how did you uh, guys at Harris and then Penn, I mean, how did, how did you equate success and pay? How, how did you make those things mesh? Well, what was your philosophy? You know, I spent the last six years of my career at Penn as the chief executive officer. So I think that's the most appropriate uh, context that I can give you. And when you look at my compensation package that the board had structured for me, over 80% of that compensation was based on performance. You know, my base salary, you could say, was was not just showing up for work. But when you looked at my annual incentive bonus, uh, which was to deliver company-wide operating cash flows, and you look at my long-term compensation, which was, for the most part, uh, stock options that were priced and granted at a period of time um, that only that only appreciated for me if the shareholders received uh, additional value through my management and my team's management. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the fact that 80% of my compensation was performance-based, I think, gave our shareholders and the people that watch these governance questions, uh, you know, the right, uh, the right set of uh, metrics around how I would be compensated if our shareholders were fairly compensated. And I think that's a, that's the right way to set up the appropriate compensation schemes for CEOs and other senior managers. Uh, and, you know, I know that there's been a lot of things recently about the ratios of CEO pay to medium pay within companies. And, and I think for the most part, and I'm a, I sit on the compensation committee at Darden, I was very involved with the compensation committee at Penn National. You know, it's a metric that's been put out there now for the last two or three years. It, it, it frankly doesn't get a lot of attention from shareholders uh, out there. You know, all shareholders are concerned about uh, is to make sure they're getting they're getting good returns for their investment, and that management is providing good leadership in, in the performance of the company. And if, if shareholders are happy, for the most part, and you're you're operating with the right degree of governance and integrity, those things take care of themselves. And you don't see a lot of criticism about that ratio out there in, in the governance world. Yeah, even as consultants of corporate governance, we don't put a lot of stock in that particular issue. Uh, it seemed more political than than really economical uh, or economic as to how that got to put into play. But market mix, I mean, and, and pay mix and those kinds of things, how those things mesh together certainly do. I mean, when you see someone getting paid at high levels and their pay mix is you know, maybe 40% LTIP, you, you do scratch your head at that. So maybe it's more of a mix issue than, than anything else. I think it's also it's also the, the quality of the compensation committee that has to work with their comp consultants out there to understand what the industry pay standards and, and pay practices are so that you're competitive, but make sure you're appropriately fitted in there with uh, other like CEOs and senior managers so that uh, you're not an outlier in an industry where where you've seen in the past certain compensation packages from CEOs that are just outlandish and and need to be highlighted and corrected because they're just wrong. How do you view competition, especially, again, thinking about when you were an operator 
uh, maybe different than a board member. We can separate that out. But how did you look at competition and, and the people you were going head to head with when you were running the company? You know, always publicly, Keith, always publicly. I would never, ever, ever criticize a competitor. I was always taking the high road to make sure that uh, you know there was nothing that, that was out there that was criticism of what a, what another company that was doing. However, internally, within inside the organization, I wanted to beat the crap out of everyone in every market we operated in, one customer at a time, making sure that we had the best talent and that we didn't lose good talent and people to the competitors and that we were providing a level of service and experience market by market better than our competitors. Uh, it wasn't always about building the biggest box and spending the most capital. It was about creating the best experiences. And I wanted to make sure that, uh, you know, market share was important, but the market share of operating cash flows within a market is even more important because that's how well you're delivering profits back to your shareholders. Can you think back to like one thing that you did learn? I mean, that, like greatest lesson from a competitor, maybe a, a battle that you lost, something you said, hmm. Yeah, we got we got beat on that one. Let's honestly, uh, you know, the greatest lesson I ever, I ever learned from my competitors were the ones that made mistakes in overcapitalizing their developments and okay. not getting not getting good returns on invested capital. You know, when you think about the last fifteen years in the gaming industry, all the capital that's been deployed in markets like Las Vegas and Atlantic City, you know, Revel, now Ocean, Cosmo, yeah, I mean, four billion dollars of capital that you know they they sold. They sold off to, for 1.7 billion. There's just been tremendous mistakes made by bad capital allocation decisions. That really has always stuck in my mind about how to make sure you can grow your business profitably. And you know the way you create shareholder value in large part in the casino industry is uh, making sure that your return on invested capital is better than your competitor. That's something that always stuck with me about not making the mistakes that others have made uh, out there. And I think. The companies that have done well over the long term have uh, also learned those lessons about don't overcapitalize uh, on properties where you don't think you're going to get acceptable returns. Got it. How about strategy planning? I hear so many people I've interviewed over the years that we had a strategy for this. We had a plan for that. A lot of them never come to fruition. But how do you use those terms inside your organizations? You know, we had a long-term five-year strategy and that kept evolving. And it was more about where we were going long-term, how we were thinking about new revenue sources to continue to grow our business. And, and that evolved. And that, that, was, that was an important process that we'd use annually to update. My whole belief about how to be successful is you can have the greatest strategy, the greatest vision, uh, but if you can't execute, you're not going to win. My focus was all about three to five things that we wanted to accomplish during that annual operating period needed to be, keep it very simple for the organization, make sure how they knew they could fulfill their roles within those three to five key objectives, and then just execute the hell out of those objectives at, at the property level and through the corporate offices and making sure there was complete alignment on where we needed to go over the next 12 months. Yes, thank you. I, I think that's what we've been finding is is the devils in the details, this issue of, again, the way of conducting business, that we, we hear so many people with great strategies and great ideas, but get lost somewhere along the way. So I appreciate your candor on that because uh, we, we seem to see it all the time. It's not the grand vision that's the problem. It's the details. Two more questions, and I'll let you go. Uh, the ability to adapt. Again, another 
Brady Belichick thumbs up was always their ability to adapt in the second half. At least that's what you heard is their ability to uh, come out with a, an entirely new plan or adapt to the circumstances. You got a five-year plan. You got all these systems in place. How do you how do you adapt and change rapidly in a changing environment? Well, you've got to be brutally honest in your assessment of the environment and what's out there as threats and opportunities. And I'll give you a real-life example, Keith. Please. Uh, I, I, I uh, became CEO in, in uh, late 2012. Uh, when we split the company out into the Propco structure it is today. And uh, one of the things that I was looking at in my, in my world was there was going to be something happening with online gaming that we needed to get involved with in a big way because it was going to be an opportunity. And if we didn't take a lead on it, it was going to be a threat for us. And we recognized quickly that we needed to get into this business. We didn't want to give it to an outside third party to, to be the one that was going to realize the long-term benefits of being involved with iSports and iCasino. And mm -hmm. uh, in 2013, we created a new business unit and have evolved it since to a point where one of the last things I did as CEO at the end of 2019, we recognized we needed a media partner to help us grow this business. And we got, got into the deal with Barstool Sports, Dave Portnoy. You know, that's just one real life example of assessing your environment, looking what's happening around at that time early on in 12, what went on in Europe to take advantage mm -hmm. of the opportunity, what could potentially happen in the United States and how was, how were the policymakers at the state level going to evolve into this opportunity? Were they going to accept it and, and in what form? And that, that is, that's really how you have to think about your business environment, take advantage of that. And as I said before, I'm always looking for new ways to, uh, identify revenue and growth opportunities that fit the core competency of what we were doing in the past. It might be the saving grace of the business. I mean, Penn's trading at incredible multiples right now, I suspect largely based on the barstool deal, not bricks and mortar. No question. The, 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 the expectation that there's going to be you know, 30 to $40 billion of sports betting revenue out there in the next five to seven years, and that Barstool positions us well with the avid sports enthusiast to take advantage of that opportunity. That's why you, you see Penn shares at $70 right now, where it started the year at around uh, 30 35 And then finally, this issue of, of building long-term success, call it a dynasty, you know, in sports, you hear about the dynasties. Uh, how do you do that in business? Uh, it seems things are moving so quickly that you can be in and out of business. Uh, there aren't a lot of, you know, GMs and Fords anymore. What do you think the recipe is for building a dynasty? I think it's real simple, Keith. You've got to have a good eye for talent and good leadership style and profile to create a culture that maximizes that talent. I've always viewed my jobs, whether I was chief operating officer or chief executive officer, I was also the chief talent officer. And I had to make sure that I had a good talent lens to recognize people that had potential. On the converse side, make sure people weren't A players, that they were uh, managed out of the organization because we need to get better players in place. And it, I think it's all about having the right people in the boxes and making sure you give them opportunities to succeed and grow their careers. And uh, it's it's nothing uh, nothing more complex than that. I think I've had a fairly good skill of assessing talent and, and putting people in the right place and, and doing the right uh, development planning to grow their careers. And you know, people want to work for a growth company. People want to feel like they're working for a winner. And if you can create that culture and have the right people within that culture, long-term, you're going to succeed. 
appreciate that. On a personal note, how, how's the transition going to retirement slash being, I guess, board member of a number, I suspect you'll you'll take on a couple more boards, but how's that transition been? Keith, other than the pandemic, it's been great. Um, I'm never bored. You know, I've got enough things to to keep me busy. I'm, I'm doing some investments with some, with some VC people in Boston I'm familiar with. I'm on a, I'm on a couple boards. I play a fair amount of golf, but not every day. <laughs> and, uh, you know, other than the constraints that we have uh, surrounding this virus, it's been really, really good. I thought I'd be bored. I thought I'd be climbing the walls, you know, some days, some weeks. That hasn't been the case. And I keep in contact with Jay Snowden and, and some members of the Penn team and we talk about what's going on within their business. They reach out for my perspectives on things. And so it's been all good. Um, I do uh, I do hope we can get through this thing in the next couple months and get things back to normal so that we can, you know, one of the things my wife and I wanted to do that had to be put on the side this year is, you know, we were going to travel to Europe. We we're going to travel out West and all that stuff's on hold. So, you know, hopefully the second half of 2021 will be much different. Well, again, thank you. I really appreciate you taking a half hour of your busy schedule. But maybe you'll have to make a later tea time tonight. So. <laughs> um, Take care, Keith. Again, all the best and let's stay in touch. You bet, Keith. Take care. Okay, bye. bye Thanks for listening to Dollars and Drivers. Until next time, this is Keith Kefchitz. Thank you.